This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? My name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here at Vortex, and it's good to have you with us. We are in a series called Unhinged. We're examining offense, the thing that happens inside of us that literally unhinges the work that God has so desperately been busy accomplishing on the inside of us. And today I'm nursing a little bit of a cold, and so if you would just bear with me, I'm going to sip some coffee along as I teach today. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is that offense typically is connected to conflict. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? It doesn't just happen out of, out of peaceful, comfortable times, right? Offense just becomes an option when there's conflict. And I, I started thinking about, I asked you guys, what's, what's the stupidest fight you've ever had with your spouse? Right? I love those stories, right? Don't you just love people talking about their stupid fights? You just you sit back and, like, you know, you just mush on some popcorn, because every time they talk about their stupid fight, it just becomes a fight all over again, right? Like some of y'all confessed this week on Facebook that you, you get in fights about how the dishes should go into the dishwasher, just every week, fighting with each other, bickering about how it should be organized. Some of y'all have fights about which direction the toilet paper roll should be put on the toilet paper holder. Some of y'all have fights about whether there is toilet paper there at all, Right? Some of y'all have had fights about who gets to go into the shower first in the evening. Thought it'd be fun to share with you one of our stupid fights that we had when we first got married. Now, if you know me, it's just bless my heart, you know. <laughs> so I'm gonna say, you know, I like I have kind of a bend inside of me that wants things to be orderly and and kind of straight and neat and. And when we got married, there were things that we got, and, and there were things that we got that were handed me down, right? You know that the things that you get that are hand-me-downs normally are not quite as nice as the things that you get as gifts. And the truth is, is that the bath mats that we had in our bathroom were hand-me-downs. I got them from somebody. I don't even remember who we got, but they were the ugliest things that God ever created. A purple, long shag carpet. Which basically, if you leave it unattended, becomes, it just looks like a rat's nest, right? And so with me in my bend, and I just want to, just before I get into the story, I just want to tell you that, that having kids has been so good for me. Because I love what my friend Ed, who is a part of our team here, says, you know, when you have kids, you want your home to be clean enough so they don't get sick, but, but disorderly enough that it's always fun, right? And so we've tried to create that balance at home. It's really been a healthy thing for my soul to learn how to balance that for me. Um, so I say that before I tell you this story so I, you won't think I'm as neurotic and crazy as this story makes me sound, okay? Because I would go into the bathroom and that shag car would be going everywhere, and I would go in and I would kind of massage it and get it all going one direction. And then when I was getting into the shower, I would step over the bath mat to get into the shower. And I would step over it on my way out. And every once in a while, I'd come in there and it'd be all messed up. Carpet going every different direction. How did it get this way? Amanda. Amanda. 
Did you mess up the bath mat? What are you doing using the bath? Don't even let your feet touch the bath mat. We have people, this is no joke. We have friends of ours that bought us bath mats that don't have fiber on them, so we wouldn't have any more fights about that. Stupid, right? Sometimes you get in fights that are stupid. Sometimes you get in fights that are silly. Sometimes there's conflict that, if we're honest, is quite serious. But you know what's interesting? It doesn't matter whether it's silly or stupid or serious. All conflict has the potential to become an offense because conflict can lead to a wound. And I want you to see this about woundedness today. When we are wounded, it is easy to become offended. When we are wounded, it is easy to become offended. And offense is one of those things, as we looked at it last week, that really is a trap of the enemy. God doesn't want your heart to become offended. The enemy wants your heart to become offended because as Jesus taught us, if you didn't listen to it last week, please go back and do that. As Jesus taught us, when we become offended, we'll eventually betray that relationship and eventually our hearts will turn to hate and the love that we had will grow cold. That's what the enemy wants. Because what does Jesus command to us? Love each other as I have loved you. The world will know that you are my disciples because of this. Because you love one another. So if our love grows cold, our capacity to demonstrate who God is, is diminished. And it happens through offense. So what I'd like to do today, is I'm going to tell two stories of two great men in Scripture and they, they kind of give us a picture of how there are common wounds that we all probably have experienced. See, we are wounded, the first one, is when we are mistreated by those that are close to us. Last week I told you the reason that the potential of a close relationship for, for offense is so high is because the intimacy is so high. And there is a wound that comes from those who are close to us. We see this happen in Scripture, in the life of a man named Joseph. And Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. He's the son of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the faith. He is right there in the lineage of the story of redemption. And he is the favorite son. The favorite son. He gets the, the, the best clothes, right? He's, his, and eventually he's stupid, right? Because he has a, a dream that one day he's going to be in charge of his family. He's going to have power over his brother. And he tells all his older brothers, 10 older brothers, and he tells them that. If you have 10 older brothers, you ought to know. If you tell them that you, one day you're going to have power over them, they're just going to beat the snot out of you. All right, he's apparently not that smart. But he tells them. And it, the story really, if you're reading it, it goes from like zero to 100 real quick. Because he tells them this dream, and before long, they're like, let's kill him. Like, what? Where'd that come from? Like, that seems like a bit harsh. And they actually agree that's a bit harsh, so they sell him into slavery, which is still pretty bad. And he gets sold to these Ishmaelite traders who take him to Egypt, and eventually he gets sold to uh, an a, one of Pharaoh's top officials, his name is Potiphar, he goes into his house, begins to serve. Before too long, Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape. 
and he's thrown into prison. Imagine, imagine if that were your story. God gave you a vision of greatness and every step after that vision seemed to be one step away, a removal of freedom, a removal of freedom, a removal of freedom. It seems if you look at the arc of Joseph's story as if he is walking away from the will of God. Can't just tell you there's a kind of hidden within his, just this principle that nobody can take you out of the will of God except you. Nobody can. And nobody can change your perspective except you. See, all the way through this, in the middle of, of this prison where Joseph had every freedom taken from him except the freedom of his perspective. He was in prison in ancient Egypt. Now, in those days, prison was punishment. It wasn't rehabilitation. He didn't get three square meals a day. As a matter of fact, they wanted him to suffer. He would have gotten just enough food to live. And he was a foreigner accused of raping one of Pharaoh's officials' wives. I mean, he was in a horrible situation. And there were a couple of Pharaoh's officials that were in prison with him, and he apparently knew them, and they had dreams. They had no idea what they meant. And if you read the text, watch what Joseph says. Joseph, I can tell you what those mean. God's faithful. He'll tell me what they mean. Just tell me your dreams. God is what? God is faithful. I'm going to tell you what. If I were in a prison, and in modern day, it would be like being in a Mexican prison. All right, if I were in a Mexican prison, I would be saying anything but God's faithful. But there he is. Why? Because Joseph protected his perspective. See, Joseph always chooses to see that God is present in his life and good. Always makes that conscious decision to say, God's present. He's good. He's taking care of me. He hasn't left me alone. He's not failed me. God is here. God is faithful. And some of us have experienced woundedness in similar ways to Joseph, where it's come when we were wounded, when we were mistreated by those who are closest. Some of us experienced it in a different way. Where we are wounded when we're abused by those that have authority over us. And this is a significant issue. Let me just jump into a kind of a cultural stream that's going on, a narrative that's bigger than, than this. That, that those who in the Bible have been given authority, God teaches very clearly that all authority comes from him. Authority is not given to lord over people. It's not given to make them do something. It's actually given to serve. And the world that we live in has inverted that. And they mistreat others and abuse authority and some of you have experienced this you know who is in the same boat with you his name is David David experienced what it was like to be abused by those who held authority over him you know the story he's anointed to become the next king you can imagine that scene right because Jesse's dad's asked to get all of his sons together get some on Samuel prays over all of them and he looks at it. Jesse's like hey I'm I prayed, God said no over all of these. Do you have another son? Oh, yeah, David, but he's out in the field taking care of the sheep. So they called David in. This is the one. 
Before long, Saul hears of David, and he's struggling with a tormenting spirit. That's what the Bible calls it. And as David would play for him, and he was a musician, the, the torment would cease. And so he becomes an invitee of Saul, the king, to come into the palace. And David is so gifted and skilled at caring for Saul that eventually he takes up permanent residence in the palace and is invited by the king to dine with his family. A huge honor. A huge honor. Him and Saul's son, Jonathan, become best of friends. And eventually, David becomes one of the greatest military leaders in all of Israel. And one day, on the way home from a battle, after the fame that he achieved after killing the giant Goliath, Saul hears women singing a song that says, Saul has killed us thousands, but David has killed us tens of thousands. And something in his heart inverts. And from that point on, he wants David dead. Because he sees David as a threat to his throne. So I want you to see this. David was betrayed by every father in his life. Every father figure that he ever had betrayed him. His dad didn't think he was good enough to be king. Saul, who became a father figure, eventually is going to try to run him out. And actually, he's going to live for years on the run trying to avoid Saul. Every father figure that David ever had. There's some of you that just unfortunately, your life story leveraged you where those fathers that have been in your life that had authority did not take their authority as an opportunity to serve. Instead, they leveraged abuse through it. David's right in that same boat with you. But here's the thing about David. Even though Saul chose to hurt David, he never sought revenge. Given the opportunity, he never sought revenge. It begins really in 1 Samuel 24 when David and his men are hiding in a cave and Saul shows up to use the bathroom and and sneaks into the cave to use the bathroom. David is as if God is delivering Saul right there for him to kill him. And you know the story, sneaks up behind him, cuts off a piece of his robe. Saul exits. David walks out in front of the entire army. Saul, here's a piece of your robe. I could have just killed you. But these words, God forbid I ever touch the Lord's anointed. In front of all the armies, Saul lets him go. Rides away, but in just a few moments is already hunting him again. Two chapters later, so interesting. If you read 1 Samuel 26, God causes the entire army of Israel to fall asleep. And David sneaks into the camp. Him and his associate sneak into Saul's tent and find him passed out asleep with his spear buried in the ground right next to his head. All he had to do was take it out and put it right through his skull and it was over with. His associate looks at him, David, God has delivered Saul into your hands. Take the opportunity. It can all be over with. And David, again, the words... God forbid that I ever touch the Lord's anointed. See, I want you to think about this. What's happening in those moments? 
Did God deliver Saul to David? Or was God testing David to see if David was was going to be another Saul? Because who was Saul? Saul was a king who used his authority for his own benefit, for his own protection. And David is going to become, as Scripture would call him, a man after God's own heart. In those moments, God was testing him. See, David always made this decision. He always left revenge to God and chose to honor God's authority. He refused to take the story into his own hand. And so what I want to do for the remainder of the time that we have together today, I want to talk about how do we deal with woundedness? Because Jesus said it's impossible that no offense would come to you. It's just impossible. We went through this last week. That there are going to be opportunities in life where you're going to be presented with the opportunity to become offended. Most of that happens through woundedness. And so I want to talk about how we can prevent a wound from becoming an offense. And we really see it buried within those two men. I'm going to start with this. Romans 12, 19. Look at this verse. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Leave that up there for me. Do you find a loophole and never take revenge? There isn't one, y'all. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Not a suggestion. Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For what does God say? God says, I will pay them back. But see, the problem is that we often want them to be paid back with whatever we were paid with. I was dealt with pain. I want them to feel pain. And oftentimes what happens is that maybe for the first time ever, Somebody who has wounded you, when you deal with it the right way, the Holy Spirit gets involved in their lives, and maybe God leads them to himself. It's payback. Just not the kind you want sometimes. And it's a command. Now, some of y'all may be out there going, well, how do I do this? Here's the principle, the first one. This is in your notes. Refuse to take revenge when there's an opportunity to be offended. Refuse to take revenge when there's an opportunity to be offended. Man, this is so important. You're going to see this in the next few minutes. I'm going to let you see how this kind of emerges throughout all of Scripture, this principle. And here's why. Look at this. That God considers it sinful when we try to take revenge, but he considers it holy when we leave vengeance to him. God considers it sinful when we try to take revenge, but he considers it holy when we leave the vengeance to him. Why is that? Because there's always, I don't care what your experience is in life, there's always a gap between what it is and what it should be. And the problem is, what are you going to do with that gap? When someone has mistreated you, or someone has abused you, are you going to look at that gap and say, I'm going to close this gap by giving them what they gave to me. I'm going to take back, I'm going to have revenge. Or are you going to look at the distance between what is and what should be and say, this is holy ground, God, I trust you with it. I trust you with this. 
Now, I know there's some of y'all out there going, but revenge, I don't ever try to do that. I'm not in some Chandra Rhymes TV show. I'm not in scandal or anything like that. I'm not living that way, right? I, I think that sometimes we don't really understand what revenge is as the Bible talks about it. So I'm going to give you four things that I think that we do to take revenge on people. The first one, how do we take revenge? We insult. We insult. This is where someone who has hurt you, instead of giving them grace, giving them forgiveness, you internalize that pain and you talk about it to other people. You tell that story over and over again. It has no healing purpose. It has no redemptive purpose. You're just telling it because you want other people to hear how bad they've been. You insult them. Now, if you hired a contractor and the contractor came in and ruined your kitchen and you got a friend who's about to hire the same contractor, feel all, just feel permission to tell them how bad your experience was. All right? But if you hired a contractor that ruined your kitchen and for the next four months that's your conversation fodder over lunch with your friends, that's insulting. And it's taking revenge. The second way that we try to take revenge is that we internalize. We swallow the pain. And the intention up front is that I'm going to do this. I'm going to kind of swallow this hurt because I'm never going to let you hurt me again. I'm going to put up boundaries and walls and protection that will keep you from doing what you did to me ever again. But the problem is when you swallow pain, it turns into bitterness. And bitterness taints everything inside of you. We try to seek revenge by internalizing. Then we try to seek revenge by inverting the wound. What you did to me, I'm going to do to you. An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. You slap me, I slap you. You talk about me, I'm going to talk about you. You say something ugly about me on Facebook, you just watch out. I'm going to put something ugly about you too. All right? We invert the wound to take revenge. And the last thing, y'all think about this, is that we injure. We injure. Now, I don't mean this in that we physically actually take out stuff like, you know, try to go beat the person that's hurt us. No, we want them to suffer. We want them to suffer. They hurt us. I want them to be injured. Recently, one of the people that I would consider one of my very best friends uh, re- really hurt me, okay? It was just a season that I walked through. And um, I responded immediately the way that I would want somebody to respond to me. Grace, forgiveness, mercy, release. And I was with them just a few days after that. And we were with some more friends, and we are all hanging out, and I looked over, they were laughing, cutting up, having a good time. And this is a thought that went through my head. Why are you having fun? Why are you even laughing? You hurt me. You should be so filled with shame and pain right now that you shouldn't be able to laugh. And then I caught myself. Like, really? Didn't you forgive them? 
Didn't you give them grace? Didn't you release them from that? Didn't you say, I'm never going to identify you by your failure? That Why in the world would they live in it when you've forgiven them? Because I wanted revenge. I wanted them to suffer because I had suffered. That's revenge, y'all. And it's a big issue. As a matter of fact, it emerges all the way through Scripture. We see it obviously there in King David's life, but then we fast forward to Solomon who wrote the the book of Proverbs and we see this emerge throughout the book of Proverbs, this book of wisdom, Proverbs 20, verse 22. Don't say I will re or pay back this wrong. Wait for the Lord, he will avenge you. Proverbs 24, verse 29. Do not say I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Don't say that. Then the Apostle Paul, who is writing to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And then Jesus. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other Also, do y'all remember the scene where Jesus is standing before Pilate? Do you remember that? Having been arrested the night before, been imprisoned and starved all night long, now at this point having been beaten several times. A bloodied mess. The king of all kings, the creator of the very world that he stood on top of, Jesus refused to defend himself. Refused it. He didn't defend himself. He could have in that moment argued all he needed to. He could have at that moment struck everyone dead. He could have caused a release on his own. But he submitted. I love how Peter, who was there firsthand, described that moment. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left, pay attention, he left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Fairly, And if you want in the moment of woundedness to keep your heart from becoming offended, you have to always take up that perspective to leave your case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Isn't that what we saw in the life of Joseph? as he protected his perspective time and time again, even though freedoms were taken, even though all of that was happening to him and he finds himself in prison. You see, we protect our hearts from offense by guarding our perspective. By guarding our perspective. Joseph did that. It shows us that Jesus, even in that moment before Pilate, was willing to do that. Peter, continuing on in chapter 3, verse 9, says this, don't repay evil for evil. That sound familiar? Some, somewhat of a theme that seems to be emerging. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate 
with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay attention here, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. Now, there's a lot of times people come in my office and be like, Kevin, I have no idea what God's called me to do in life. I have no idea. I'm just so, like, I don't know. This is what God has called you to do. (laughs) Right here. Pretty plain, by the way. Pretty plain. This is what God has called you to do. Don't pay people back evil. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. I want you to see something about a wound. See, when we can choose revenge, God is often setting us up for a blessing. When we have the capacity and the option to choose to be revenge seekers, God is often in his mighty name setting us up for a blessing. Isn't that what you see in Joseph when he's in the prison and those dreams happen and he says, cupbearer, this dream means that you're going to go back into service of the Pharaoh, but, but I'm sorry, you're... Your dream, your dream means you're going to get killed, and it happens, and cupbearers then take him back up and goes back to work, and, and a few years later, Pharaoh has a dream. And all the people who can interpret dreams are brought in. Nobody can interpret the dream. And finally, this is years after this moment. It's about 19 years since he lived in his father's house. Joseph is called up out of prison to stand in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells him his dream, and he asks him, can you interpret this dream? (laughs) Read the scriptures, because what he says is remarkable. He goes, no, I can't. But God can. I can't, but God can. Because his perspective was so guarded. And he trusted God so much. And he interprets the dream. And God installs him into the second most powerful position. The only person that has more power in all of Egypt is Pharaoh himself. And so he is perfectly positioned when famine hits the land. And his family shows back up. He actually hides from them. He doesn't want them to know who he is. And he sends them with food. And then he actually goes back and brings them back. And then he reveals himself to them in this moment. Look at this. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. It was God who sent me here. And notice the end to what? To preserve your lives. See, Joseph's heart never went to revenge. It went to restoration. We see that in the heart of David. Second Samuel chapter 1, David is camped, hiding away from Saul, and he receives the news as a man shows up and says, Saul is dead, Saul is dead, David, you are free. And in that moment, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I would be anticipating David to be happy, but he's not. He actually, him and his men, begin to mourn the death of Saul. So much so that they ripped their garments and they laid on the ground crying and sobbing at the death of God's anointed king. And he stood up and he looked at the man who brought the news and said, how did you know that Saul is dead? He said, well, I was there. 
I was on the battlefield. Saul had been shot with an arrow, and I went up to him, and he asked me to put him out of his misery, and so I killed him on the battlefield. I thought you would be happy to know that. David looks at him. You mean you? You touched God's anointed? And he looks to one of his associates, one of his men, take him away and execute him. Because he touched the king that God anointed. David never let his heart go to revenge. And then he stepped into one of the most prosperous kingdoms that Israel had ever known. Became the birth line for Jesus himself. Why? Because when the opportunity for offense is there and we can choose revenge, God is often setting us up for a blessing. Isn't that what you see at the very end of the story of Jesus? That there he is. With all the opportunity to defend himself, he remains quiet. He is led away, trusting the hand of God. And on that Friday afternoon, it looked as if it was all lost when he died on the cross. Bearing the weight of all the sin and death that had ever existed right there on his shoulders. A man who knew no sin made to be sin for our good. And he was buried. And it seemed as if the story was over. But it wasn't. Because three days later, he rose from the grave. And stepped into a level of blessing where victory is now ours through him over death. Because when we have the opportunity to choose revenge, God is almost always setting us up for a blessing. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.